From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, artist and writer Myra Kalman. Myra was born in Tel Aviv and moved to New York City with her family at the age of four. She has written and illustrated over 30 books for adults and children and is a frequent contributor to The New Yorker and The New York Times. We are so thrilled to have her in the studio today. Myra is going to read a story from her new book, Women Holding Things, coming out later this year, and another one from her 2018, Cake. Hi, Myra. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So this is a fun fact. I believe that you went to the same high school as my mom called Music and Art then, now called LaGuardia, and actually graduated in the same year. Oh, my God. Who is she? Good question. Jane Cohen at the time. You know, I was in music, by the way. <gasps> oh, just, really? Just, just to expand the story a bit. Yeah. Ah, I was a musician. Okay. So that's so. even though I had friends, of course, in the art, the music, I knew more music students. Well, what was it like going to that school and at that time? Oh, music and art was uh, extraordinary. The best school experience I could ever imagine. I mean, much more than college. Music and art, when you go there as a teenager and everybody's an artist on one level, you know, either music or art. And the atmosphere is incredible. It just, you know, and there were no sports. There was no prom. Everybody was anti-everything. And, and also very enthusiastic about many things. And there was just a lot of, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. So, yes, very fond memories. Do you remember your audition at all? Very well, because I sang a song by Haydn called My Mother Bids Me Bind My Hair with ribbons of rosy hue, which I probably, they're still weeping hearing me sing that. And then I played a Beethoven sonata. I think I got through four measures, and then they said, fine. Which which meant either they couldn't take it anymore, but they were, <laughs> I thought it meant they couldn't, they couldn't take it anymore, but they meant... Okay, you're in. So it was great. Wow. And so did you do any fine art at that time or illustration? No. Okay. When did you get into that? When I became a a despondent poet in college. I see. And thought, if I say one more, if I use one more word from the English language to describe my sorrow... I don't know what's good. Something terrible was happening. And of course, you know, and the humor, the level of what I, the, the sense of humor that I had completely disappeared when I was writing in my angst-ridden years. So I thought, oh, I know, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll start drawing and I'll do cartoons because of course I did have a sensibility of a sense of humor and I had to find a way to use it. Saul Steinberg was very important then, a new wave drawing, a lot of kind of pop-up edgy stuff was going on, and I thought, oh, I, can, I think this is what I should do. So I did. I'll say. Your art and what you create, it moves between so many different mediums, from like design to illustration, from kids to adults. Are there principles that you feel guide you through all of these different facets of your work? Ignorance. <laughs> okay, explain that. 
I guess I had the sensibility, and I have to say that I met the man that I was going to marry, who I've written about a lot, Tibor Kalman, when we were 19, and in dropout summer school and college. So that already <laughs> tells you something about where we, the two of us were. But he was a, a an incredible man. He was brilliant and fearless and was a journalist and then became a designer and then became an editor. And the conversations that we had were about why on earth would you limit yourself if you're curious about things? Why not just try them? What's the worst that could happen? It could go badly. But mistakes bring good is something that we always said to each other. The sense that uh, there was no reason not to try things. He was somebody who was an encourager and an insister on that kind of life. And so we worked together for many years with that principle of we don't know anything about what we're doing, but we'll find out. When you met him at at 19, did you know right away that he was not only going to be like a partner for life, but also that you would collaborate with him on a creative basis? I think that I knew that I needed to collaborate with whoever I was with, that that was going to be a kind of prerequisite, Un- unspoken, but it seemed quite clear. We were instantly friends, but then we had to, you know, this is the late 60s, we had to break up many times and explore <laughs> many different <laughs> options of what other people were. And often my reason for breaking up with him, now that I have the last word, is that he was too happy. <laughs> and I kept thinking, where is my, you know, where is my Bob Dylan? Where is my Leonard Cohn? Where is my miserable? And this was a man who was not afraid and was not sad. One thing that I love about your work is the depictions of many like iconic people and objects. How do you discern which subjects get your attention or that you want to focus on? It's a very lovely process that I get to wake up and just follow my instinct every day. I mean, I have deadlines and work to do, but within that, I've created a kind of place where I can just say what's interesting and over the days if those things keep returning and I kind of keep mulling about well this thing or that thing usually what's interesting to me keeps surfacing and that's what I write about and that's what I paint about and the other part of it is the surprise of what happens during the day which is the surprise of every day not know having any idea what it is that I'm going to see or read or encounter that's going to be ah that's that's it that happens 20 times a day, easily, easily. If I wasn't or weren't, whichever it is, lazy, (laughs) then I could be working 24 hours just for what I saw that day. You lived in New York for most of your life. Have other places been inspiring to you in the same way? Or is New York something special for you when you're trying to get out and get this inspiration? New York is it. There's no, there's nothing like New York. There are many places that I adore, Tel Aviv and Rome. We lived in Rome for a few years. And, and uh, you know, the list goes on of extraordinary places. But for sheer people, intensity of interest, there's no place like New York. And I, f- I think I felt that way when I came here when I was four, being yanked from my lovely small life in Tel Aviv. And I, we got here and I was like, this is good. <laughs> you knew right away. I knew right away. I was really happy. And I, I, you know, I also talk about this just to drink Coca-Cola. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no, there's no better drink. I, to this day, I still think that's the greatest thing that was ever invented in terms of food. But it was a, a paradise for me. And it still is through all of the, all of the stuff that happens and all of the good and the bad. It's New York. 
you were talking about the the Coca-Cola. Do you use like a can, a bottle? No can, no can. I I was in labor with my first child and I insisted that Tibor get me a container of Coke. And I was really in labor, and he thought, I don't, th- I don't think you should have that. And I <laughs> screamed at him, get me the Coke. <laughs> I think that's what got me through. I ask because when you illustrate or paint food, you turn it into an object. And I'm curious about like what the significance is that you're trying to preserve when you illustrate a food item or a meal. Well, I don't want to invoke Proust this early. But I am. Proust would love schmaltz. No, he probably wouldn't. But the the sense for me of my day and how I memorialize my day and how I identify my life are the moments that are ecstatic. And if a moment is ecstatic, and it can be a tiny moment like having a crawler on the corner with a cup of coffee. That's probably one of the high points of the day. I'll say. That deserves writing or painting, then it just, it's a, it's literally an expression of joy. There's no other way that I could put it. And I don't have an agenda. I don't think I need to do something or should do something. It's really, and that's what the surprise is, that you just don't know when you're going to go like, oh, okay, I'm really, this is fantastic. And, uh, you know, trudging along and then going, whoa. And that's my job. My job is to do that. So I'm a journalist and I'll paint and I'll write what I see and what I eat. How do you know when a work is finished? Well, I don't want to do it anymore. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, and then I can, you go back to a painting. I mean, if we're talking about painting and writing, it's very similar. Like you, you have to look at it a day later and then a week later and then go, oh, no, 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 no. Or, oh, okay. And then adjust as needed is what, is what we say. And so, and then at a certain point, you just stop. You have a new book coming out this year. It's called Women Holding Things. So tell me a little bit about it. Well, I noticed that women hold things a lot. <laughs> One day I noticed. No, I noticed that I was photographing a lot of women holding things. It just interested me whether it was a box or a cabbage or a violin. And then, of course, the idea of women holding things and mm-hmm. what it means to hold so many different emotions and responsibilities and feelings and memories. So I thought, ah, this is a nice subject. I could not agree more with the fact that women are always holding things. I never leave the house without so many things somehow. It's just what we're burdened with. And in the brain too. You know, you leave the house with a lot of things in your brain and in your thoughts and worries. Many, many worries. And I don't want to say that men don't worry or don't hold things or don't care about anything. Of course they do, but in a, but as in a different way. It's very exciting because Myra is going to read a story from her upcoming book, Women Holding Things. We're so honored to be, I assume, one of the first readings of... Oh, the very first. You know, I write a lot about my family and my parents. In this book, I write about my father, who I've barely written about, but deserves more attention. So I'm writing about men, too. But those moments in my childhood are so vivid and so meaningful to me in so many ways. I never get tired of thinking of them. Other people may get tired of hearing me talk (laughs) about it. But since this is the first time you're hearing this story, that's okay. Shall I just start? Please. Okay. My grandmother was an orphan. When she wanted to marry the man she fell in love with, his parents thought she was not good enough for him and offered her his brother. 
The brother was the man she married, and he was my grandfather. My grandfather was not as cunning or successful as his brother. He was a devout man who prayed every day. We loved him. I don't know if he ever spoke to me. I don't remember a single word. But he was a kind presence and looked down at me from a great height. Or I was very small, which I was. He only wore white shirts and black pants, unless he was working. Then he wore white shirts and khaki pants. He ended up working for his brother, who may have swindled him out of his rightful earnings. There is some discussion about that in the family. He loved to eat potatoes that the doctor said he should not. So he snuck them and burnt the pan, and my grandmother found out, and everyone knew. My grandmother was always damp from perspiring and terribly beleaguered, maybe because she did not get to marry the man she loved. She always looked haggard and distraught. But we loved her without question. I look haggard sometimes as well. I am not pleased with that, but it is unavoidable. Wow. Thank you for sharing that beautiful and very personal story. Can't wait for the book. Me neither. October. <laughs> You're describing your grandmother carrying the weight of this imagined relationship. What do you think is so powerful about a fantasy that can linger in someone's memory for a lifetime? The fantasies can feel as real as life because they are seamless and they're problem-free and they're completely delightful and easy as pie if we're going to talk about food. And the real life is full of problems and confusions. So it's very nice to have a fantasy. I don't know in her case what really was driving it because in my family nobody ever spoke about anything at all. So there's no information really, about how people felt. That was not part of it. So how did you know about these feelings or this story? The stories are, are told very often. Okay. And so the information is conveyed, but the emotional content is not really conveyed. That's me deciding what might be. Did you have a fantasy in the same way? I'm still waiting for my fantasy to come true. <laughs> but this one is with the Duke of Devonshire, so it's not, it's not going to happen. But again, that's the definition of a fantasy. Uh, yes, I, I fell madly in love before I met Tibor with Michael Goldenthal, who was my Bob Dylan. Heartbreak memories. At any rate, <laughs> yes. So we, we had some kind of flirtation. Somebody told me that he became a Hasidic Jew, which would which actually is a kind of another fantasy that I thought wouldn't it be interesting to be a devout, non-believing, but very busy with a million kids and baking. That, that kind of framework, <laughs> couldn't that be wonderful? See, that's the way it's a fantasy, because yeah. it wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like imagination plays a big part like in your life and in your work. Is that a big part of your life? I, I actually think that I don't use my imagination at all. I mean, in the sense of what one might call, I'm not making up stories. There's nothing I make up. So I'm just basing it on things that are around me. And of course, I embellish here and there. That's my prerogative. But I don't know what, I don't even know what it means to have an imagination. It sounds a little sad, but I don't mean it in that way. I mean it in a good way. Meaning you, your memories are so vivid, you have so much to go on that you don't need to imagine anything. Right. I think so. 
And even though I may be misimagining or misremembering, you know, that's that's the story. At the end of your story, you talk about how everyone in your family loved your grandmother and your grandfather, despite like their shortcomings, their personalities. You said, I think your grandmother was prickly. Your grandfather never spoke that much. Did you ever wish that they were different? No, but when we moved to America, I wanted to be a wasp. (laughs) How did that work out? Deeply. Not well at all. Okay. But I wanted to have the opposite of what that was, whatever that was. But I, you know, I don't, I didn't know what I wanted. And no, I never thought they should be different or I would change the story until meeting wasps in America. I don't even know if you can (laughs) say that anymore. What stayed with me from that story was just how you said that everyone in your family just loved them despite how they were. And what do you think contributed to this? unconditional love. It's such a mystery what unconditional love is and what love is. It's such a complete and utter mystery that I couldn't even begin. Maybe there were ties that bound the generation before me and it kind of, we felt it, it kind of wafted down to us. I I just don't know. I think it's something very common. People love their grandparents just in this way and they can almost do no wrong. And you know, it's kind of no questions asked, like having a a dog. I mean, I don't want to compare my grandparents to a to dog, but what I'm saying is that they spoke very little and dogs speak very little also. So that your relationship is based on other than dialogue. It's based on the action and the atmosphere in the house. And my grandmother was always cooking and baking for us. So that's pretty, pretty wonderful. So speaking of which, we're going to get to one of my favorite books of yours cake. You're going to read a story from that book. I'm curious, like, what made you want to make a cookbook? Well, the good the good thing is that it's a cake book. And I like to bake. I'm not a good cook. And I'm, you know, after I peel a cucumber, I'm exhausted. And I think <laughs> I can't, I can't do this. But a cake is festive and contained. And it's one thing, even though there are some steps to it. I was probably doing paintings of cakes and those kinds of things. And then a friend of mine, Barbara Scott Goodman, who is a cookbook author, said, don't you think doing a cookbook, doing a cake book would be a nice collaboration? And I thought, that's fantastic. So then I started writing stories that were very sad. I reverted back to college days and I happied it up a little bit. But this is a little bit of a sad story that I can read to you. The Broken Heart Cake. When I was 16, my heart was broken by Michael Goldenthal. He was leaving for college. I was left behind. The truth was, he was always an unwilling participant in our romance. I did more stalking than actual dating. But love is love, and I was despondent. Shoshana, my mother's sister, was staying with us in our airy apartment in the Bronx the one down the block from Mother's Bakery. Shoshana, seeing my sorrow, rather feeling my sorrow, offered to make me a cake, something sweet to soothe my soul. But I rejected her offer with a dismissive wave of the hand. What can a chocolate cake do in the face of a broken heart? Well, I was stupid, of course. She was offering me love. Oh, stupid youth. 
I was thinking about this on the way. My first food memory is being with her on the terrace in Tel Aviv with all the children and after the beach and her serving us her chocolate cake. And that sense of contentment and everything is really great, that great feeling when you're a child. The beach and chocolate cake sounds like amazing yeah. to me. <laughs> and grapes too. The Israeli grapes are really amazing. I connect my memories of food and her and that. I mean, everybody does in their lives, but those are very poignant. And I felt utterly loved always. Beautiful memory to have. It's great. I think it protects you all your life. Well, I think cake, it's often thought about in two ways. Like one, now in today's age, it's kind of something that's unhealthy or naughty, or it's a celebration or something that you want to have to comfort yourself. Where do you fall in, the, in this cake continuum? I don't eat cake all day long, and I do like the celebratory aspect, and the usually it means that people are gathering together and you're not sitting by yourself devouring a cake, though that probably has happened. But the sense of coming together and just being together and talking and enjoying things, that's a nice way to relate to people. Definitely. You talked about how Shoshana always comforted you and you felt her love through this cake. But because you were going through this heartbreak with Michael, you were like inconsolable. Yeah, I remember exactly that I was incredulous that she could think that a cake would balance out a broken love affair, even though I was the stalker, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> but that, uh, yeah, it didn't equate. And at that moment, of course, it didn't equate. Tell me how you feel about it looking back on it now. Like, it's, is it something you would do? I, I might. Okay. Yeah, I might try the same technique. <laughs> <laughs> do you have an all-time favorite memory of eating or making a cake. There's this dessert where you make these poof swans out of pastry and then you put cream in them and the swans looked like they had been through a war. They just all looked very, very like invalids. And uh, <laughs> and you put them on a, on a clear, like a mirrored whatever bottom and you sprinkle confectioner sugar so that it looks like the swans gliding on a beautiful frozen lake. Okay, so this is something you attempted. I'm well and and made. Wow, it's professional. <laughs> what was the occasion for this? The swan occasion cake? was probably it was for friends who were gathering for some I don't remember what the festive occasion was, but it demanded that I make these uh, incredibly complicated and very sad-looking swans. Wow. So did you ever try to make them again? No. Okay. <laughs> you learned your lesson. <laughs> I would have liked to see that. I think I have photos. Oh. Anyway, I could send you one. Well, from cake, I thought we would try something that has to do with one of my other favorite foods, herring. You made an illustration a few years ago called Herring and Philosophy Club. I'll, I'll tell you that I always hated herring and that family members who ate it around me, I couldn't bear it. And I would yell at anybody who came near me with the thought that herring had come near them. And I don't know what happened, but one day I woke up and I had herring. And I said, oh, God, this is fantastic. So ever since then, I became a great lover of herring. And so I also love breakfast and I don't like dinner. I, again, when I did this painting, I was probably reading a lot of philosophy and I was reading, I was reading Spinoza and Nietzsche. And it doesn't even matter because I can't remember anything about anything at all about what they <laughs> wrote at all. But I was enamored at the time. And so I thought it would be nice to have this 
club, which met once, by the way. Because <laughs> <laughs> at a certain point, you say, okay, I'm done. I'm over it. And we had a tremendous amount of different kinds of herrings from Russ and Daughters, of course, with mustard herring and with onions, of course, and I don't even remember what else, but a cornucopia of herring. And as I may have mentioned earlier, not in this conversation, that Chekhov was sent to his grave in a train truck that was filled with herring, frozen herring. I thought what might be fun is for you to describe this painting to us. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six platters of herring. There is a box with felt balls, because I was making felt at the time, and a checkered box that I got from India, and bread. Here's another pink box that I got from India, and a platter of fruit. I was also doing a lot of paintings of fruit platters, because it just was very pleasing to do that. What fruits are in the platter? In this one, grapes, and if I could paint better, I'd know what fruit that was. (laughs) I have no idea. It's a peach. Let's say peaches. Yum. I don't know. Or apples or something like that. And there are cups for coffee, of course, and silverware. And a bottle of maybe some kind of schnapps or something like that. Some kind of liquor to, it's not vodka, to have with the, sh- with the herring, but that would be nice too. What time of day did the meeting of this club happen? Just it was so I... breakfast. Oh, breakfast. Okay, so breakfast drinks. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes, you know, have you if you go to Venice and you go to the fishermen's bars, then you have little sandwiches, panini, and some kind of liqueur. And it's the, then you think, how how I ever started the day without this? <laughs> I need a drink right away. And I don't even drink. But it's a, a beautiful exception to drink in the morning. <laughs> Highly recommend it. The multiple different kinds of herring. Is there one that's your favorite? No, and you're reminding me that I haven't had it in a while. Okay. So I'm going to think about it on my walk home and decide. Probably with onions, creamed onions, I would have to say. That's the classic that, you know, I used to, yeah, a lot of creamed onions. Yeah, that's my least favorite, but. Really, what's your favorite? I I like just the, like more just a plain, you know, salted, Uh. like a nice piece of bread with like some butter. The cream, I can't get into. I think that was my helping me into the herring world. On the table at family gatherings, only certain people went near. And I couldn't bring myself to that. But but herring in general, it's it's not really the most like beautiful food, I would say. But how how do you approach maybe illustrating a food that's not like conventionally, you know, beautiful, but that's culturally important or that's important to you? Well, painting a herring is a wonderful thing. Painting any fish is really, really nice. Okay. So, uh, I'm par- you know, so I'm not just partial to the herring. There are other fish that I've painted. I'll clarify. I meant pieces of herring, not like a beautiful, you know, long uh, silver fish, but like the pieces of herring that you have in your painting. Well, you have to be, you know, authentic. That means that accurately depicting what I've seen. That's what, you know, the nice thing about painting is that you, you're not really thinking it's a fantastic equation. And so what, what in the best of all worlds, you're not only not thinking, you're not even there. You know, that it's happening with, in some kind of process that you're looking at what you're painting and it's, you're engaging with that. If you're thinking, if I'm thinking, then I'm in trouble. So the goal is to disappear, 
to disappear from myself and just to do my work. Mm. It sounds like a nice escape. It's a very good address. One last question that I have for you. If you could make your ultimate project in any medium, size or budget, you could work anywhere in the world. It can be anything that you want. Do you have an idea of what you would want it to be? What I'm doing. There's nothing that I want to do that I'm not doing at all. And that is, that pleases me a great deal. So I I think that I, I love books and books to me are precious objects. And so I would continue doing books that reflect the things that I love in this world. And that, that's a good job. Definitely. I very much look forward to seeing your new books and cherishing the books that are out there. So thank you you for doing, thank you for creating them. Thank you for reading them. And thanks for joining us. It really was a pleasure. Next time with cake. I should have brought cake, right? I mean, I wasn't going to say anything, but honestly, next time. Next time. That was Myra Kalman. Thank you for listening. I'll meet you back here next week. Until then, head to jewishfoodsociety.org for recipes from around the world. Schmalti is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get this show so you don't miss any of the stories. Schmalti is produced and edited by Gal Shaya and Particle 3. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. I'm your host, Amanda Dell.